You are listening to Health, Illness, and Recovery. Welcome back to the show with special guest, Dr. Kristen Riley. Is the goal then, um, I mean, in, in when you talk about intervention, right, mm-hmm. studies, is the goal to like uh, ultimately get children back into the, I guess, healthy range or to, to get them to from obesity to overweight or, um, or like down a rung, you know what I mean? Like... Yeah, so I think this will kind of play into what I was saying before about how do we talk to kids about weight and and how do we communicate with parents the best um, strategies that they can um, engage their family in in health behaviors Um, because kids are growing so it's not it's not they're they're going to be gaining weight um, as they as they um, as they're aging Um, and we're our programs we're looking at kids between the ages of 6 and 14 so really when they're starting to go through puberty they are hitting those growth growth spurts so we're not trying to get them to lose like massive amounts of weight per se, what we want to do and what we really want to focus on is promoting those healthy behaviors that are going to stick with them for life. So we really try to de-emphasize the weight talk and, um, and, and try and shift the focus from what your weight is to, okay, how can we have a healthy lifestyle as a family? How can we have better dietary behaviors? How can we be more physically active? How can we reduce the amount of screen time um, that we have? So yeah, shifting, um, shifting from focusing on that one child who might be having a problem to looking at the family as a whole and saying, let's be healthier. So I think sometimes it's easier for people to blame and blame parents for, you know, the, the physiological, um, I guess, image or, or shape of the child, right? So someone sees an overweight child, it's like, well, mom and dad shouldn't feed them so much. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've experienced directly in, in, in your research? So we did focus groups with parents um, at, the end of the, at the end of the program to kind of try and evaluate what their experience was like in and um, in the in the program but also you know what other barriers still exist for them um, and what they would like to see in future interventions and and that was something that came up quite a bit is that parents feel a lot of shame and stigma um, for themselves as being overweight but also for having kids who are overweight they feel like they're being judged by um, by people who don't know them but also by family and, and friends as well and so they found it um, they found it so impactful to be able to come to a, a group. So we ran a group-based program for parents um, who had children who have overweight or obesity. And just that feeling of, oh, like I'm not the only one who's dealing with this and it's okay for me to talk about um, my experience and, and you know I'm not doing everything wrong I'm not a failure as a parent. There are, I'm trying my best and there are a lot of things I'm doing right. Um, but, you know, here are some things that I can work on or I've learned some things that I, I'm, I'm taking home and, and practicing with my kids. So I think, yes, that's huge. So many parents are feeling that shame. Was there a particular demographic um, that you were seeing? Like, in, did you target a specific demographic for the... Because I'm thinking in the parents, like, was it like uh, single mothers from lower socioeconomic status? Like, was there something like that that came out? Um, no, uh, we were just trying to get anyone to sign up for our program. Um, we did um, explicitly try to recruit from um, those demographic groups that are more likely um, or at greater risk of having a child who, um, who are overweight or obese. Yep. So who is at greater risk then? So um, low-income um, low groups are, are at a greater risk of um, 
childhood obesity, also um, certain minority groups. So in London, there's um, you know a big um, Hispanic population, and they tend to be at higher risk for childhood obesity. Um, and so we were also working with the London Cross Cultural Center um, to try and, and get access to you know new Canadians and. Um, and we, we weren't able to really recruit many um, from, from either low-income neighborhoods or, or um, you know, diverse um, ethnic backgrounds either. So our, our population was quite um, homogeneous. It was, you know, mostly um, the, the nuclear family, so two parents, um, higher income, white. Um, and so that was the, the majority of our program. Um, so, yes, did that answer your question? Yeah, like, as I'm just <laughs> yeah. thinking, like, people who are, like, okay, so when we when we think about people who are at risk, like, uh, people who are from lower socioeconomic status mm-hmm. or particular, uh, you know, cultures or mm-hmm. ethnicities, is it, like, the genetics that's putting them at risk? Is it is it more of the social determinants, like, I don't know, lack of access to quality foods or, or uh, physical activities? What is it? that puts people specifically at risk? Well, that's the, yeah, that's the, one of the biggest challenges um, of understanding and treating obesity is that it's multifactorial. So many things can influence obesity. Yes, your genetics play a huge role, um, and, you know, that, that can influence things like your metabolism or different hormones in your body. Um, and, uh, you know, we take a more... Um, um, a broader approach. So we try to look at the, the socio-ecological model of health. So, you know, we look at the individual and what are those factors? So age, sex, um, yeah, culture, uh, that type of thing. Then we look broader and we look at, um, you know, the uh, interpersonal um, environment. So their family, their parents, their friends, you know, we look at schools, um, we look at the neighborhoods they grow up in, the countries, the policies that govern, um, you know, this country. And so when we look at, when when researchers look at obesity, we have to acknowledge all of those um, influencing factors and contexts. And so, yeah, many factors have been associated with obesity. Income, for sure, um, because that limits the type of food that you can purchase. It, it might limit, you know, whether your kid can participate in recreational physical activity programming. Um, it might affect the school that they go to and what kind of teachers are there and, and how much they promote physical activity. So certainly there are, are a ton of different factors, but we were really trying to hone in on parents as agents of change. So we, um, you know, acknowledging all those different factors, we know that parents... Um, Parents act as role models, and kids learn their dietary and their physical be- physical activity behaviors from their parents. And so that's why we were trying to um, specifically look at um, parents and try to um, just help educate them on how they can make changes in their family. So a couple of questions. The first one is, you spoke about the social socio-ecological model, right? And you kind of described it as sort of like a, like a, a bubbling out system or mm-hmm. like a... You throw a stone in the water and you can see it, you know, the ripple ripple effect, right? So at the very core, we have like the individual and as we work our way out, we have like policy and Mm -hmm. things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Is there any evidence or would you, in your opinion, say that one uh, particular factor over another within that model is the most important? Like, for example, is health policy the most important? Um... I think I think what the some of the strongest evidence um, is about 
lifestyle behaviors. It, uh, but I think that's because it's the most frequently studied. Okay. It's more challenging to study those like health policies to see how um, or what kind of impact they have. And also when we look at more population-based approaches, yes, they might be more comprehensive and affecting a bigger uh, or a larger population, but they might have a smaller impact. Whereas when we run a program um, specifically for parents um, here in London, and we had 11 families in our program, we might see a bigger impact, but it's on a smaller scale. So it's really hard to compare. I, I can't say for certain whether or not there's you know one main factor that's the most important. So ultimately, who, who would you say is responsible for our health? Is, does the responsibility lie with us as the individuals, given our, like that you said, lifestyle behaviors are very important? Or is there a balance between what we can do and what, like, maybe government involvement? Like, like really, who, whose responsibility is it? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's, I think it's both. Um, you know, we, engaging in these health behaviors, like eating a healthy diet and, you know, engaging in 60 minutes of moderate to physical or vigorous physical activity. Yeah, that's very individual, but it also depends on the context in which you live. And so, um, and those factors are shaped by policies. And so we need supportive policies that can help, help us achieve those things because, um, because it's hard. Parents are, are busy. It's hard to, um, get home in time to make dinner. I completely understand that. And then, you know, there's, there's, you know, you're, you have rules and policies at work that kind of govern, you know, how early you can leave or how many hours you need to put in or, you know, that dictates how much money you make. But then also those workplaces are governed by other policies that, you know, um, that dictate how, yeah, how they have to treat their staff. And so, yeah, it just, yes, we, we need more supportive policies that make um, something we say is we want to make the healthy choice the easy choice because right now it's not the healthy choice is going out of your way to get those 60 minutes of physical activity it's going out of your way to yeah spend all this time preparing a healthy meal so those we need those policies to help make it easier for us so I'm because I'm noticing things like if you go through the drive through right you're seeing like the the nutri- now nutritional information mm-hmm. on the you know that for example like the McDonald's menu list mm-hmm. right or even if you go to the grocery store some places have like a star or like a heart system yeah um, so there we're seeing some some involvement from like whoever the government mm-hmm. to to try and make us healthier and make healthier decisions. Right. So, but as you said, there, you know, we as individuals have to, in short, put in the effort as well mm-hmm. too. Right. So how much pressure then does that put on, especially parents who you said act as role models to make the right decisions and to lead by example? Oh, so much. I think, um, that's something that really came out in our focus groups is that parents were saying, it's so hard. You're asking me to do all these things. And, and, you know, I'm trying to to get home on time to be able to make dinner or to plan ahead so that I've meal prepped. I'm trying to get out and do physical activity with my child because, you know, you're telling me that that's the best if we do it together and not just kind of them playing and me watching. And, you know, it's really hard. Have you ever tried to tell your kid only two hours on the iPad? So, yeah, they're, they're finding it um, really challenging. And um, 
And they have so many demands and a, a lot of parents or a lot of families, it's, you know, both parents are working. And like I said, I grew up with my mom being able to be home and be able to, you know, prepare meals for us and make our lunches. And, and that landscape has changed a lot um, over the last 20 years. And so um, I totally, I totally empathize with parents and, and where they're at and, and how many different directions they're being pulled in right now, and 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 also where all this information that they're getting, yeah, we're, it's, it's challenging for sure. Yeah. So, did you find any anything about like stress and mental health? I mean, you just spoke about the stress experienced by parents, but did anyone start talking about mental health and and I guess parallel their mental health with their ability to to get exercise or to eat nutritious meals or things like that. Did anything like that come out? Um, yeah, there were a few. So a lot of the focus groups were parents talking about, they talked about their experience in the program, but a lot of them spoke about their kids more so than themselves. Um, some parents said that, you know, in their past, they or in their lifetime, they had used food as like a coping mechanism, and they were worried that their kids might learn the same behaviors. But I think what came out more in terms of... Um, in terms of mental health is parents were really worried like, okay, I, I acknowledge that my child has a weight issue and I know that I need to correct their behaviors, but how do I say it in a way that doesn't push them towards the eating disorder side of the spectrum? Because I, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin their self-esteem. I don't want them to think I look at them differently. I don't want them to think that I'm judging them, but I also acknowledge that we need to make some changes around here. So that's why I think that communication piece is so important. And, and we still haven't discovered the best strategies um, for parents to communicate with kids about weight. So are, were parents primarily looking at the issue like being overweight or obese as from strictly like a lifestyle behavior or were they looking at it from a socio-ecological model? Because that like sounds fancy and I don't think people unless you like had a conversation about this model would would look at it necessarily from that way yeah they were um i think they looked at it more so um like individually or or how they um, were affecting their kids but what we tried to do in in our intervention and then the resources we were giving parents was to show them like hey we get that you're doing your best but look at all these things working against you and so we had um uh, one educational session specifically on the community and we talked about all the awesome things that the London community offers and and how they can you know get access to free cooking classes or all these physical activity um, programming um, programs that exist um, in London for free um, but then we were also saying but you know look at how unwalkable London is sometimes or also you know look at how food advertising can affect kids and and so we tried to to show them like hey it's not your fault that was something that we um, we really wanted to stress with parents because um, we knew that so many of them were feeling kind of shame and stigma about their child um, experiencing a weight issue, and, and we wanted to let them know that there are a ton of things you're doing right already, and you're not a bad parent because you have a child who's overweight. And so I think that um, was really important for, for parents to hear. So parents are flooded. I mean, everybody is flooded with mm -hmm. information, especially on the internet, about mm -hmm. diet, yeah. which the keto, plant-based. Yeah. How then 
in your opinion and in your experience, like what is the right diet? Which one should we choose and which one should we choose for our children? Um, I think I think what we were more emphasizing with parents is the, this 80-20 rule. And I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's like 80% of the time, like do the best you can. Try as hard as you can to like cook from str- cook from scratch, eat together, um, you know, make sure your kids are getting veggies um, and, and, and that type of thing. 80% of the time, try, do what you can, do the best you can. But 20% of the time, we know that sometimes you're in a rush and you've got to stop at um, McDonald's or wherever to get a quick bite to eat and that's okay and that, and that happens um, and it's okay uh, to get back on track, you know, the next day. So, um, and it's interesting that you asked that because when we ran this program, the Canada Food Guide hadn't changed yet, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but recently it's gone under like a really, um, a really big overhaul. So it looks completely different than it did when we were running the program. Part of it is just kind of the presentation. I think that looks really different right off the bat. Um, I don't know if you remember kind of how the rainbow looked with the different food groups. Do you remember how yes. that looked in the old Canada Food Guide? So now it's just like a plate. Okay. And so they've kind of separated the plate. So instead of really trying to think about, okay, what is four servings of vegetables? It's like, okay, half of your plate should be fruits and vegetables. For every meal? Yeah. So that's kind of just how, it's just, it's just a, a more, um, like a, yeah, more simplistic way to understand kind of like portion sizes and serving sizes. So um, that was a big overhaul. Um, I believe they got rid of the dairy as a food group. Right I off the mat, it's I, gone. You know what? I should have fact-checked myself before I <laughs> before I um, came out and said exactly what the changes were. But I think it it is, um, you know, you, it's not that it's not recommended, but um, they're and they're also saying, you know, more um, more variety in protein sources. So not just meat and alternatives. Now it's like, what about beans and and um, yeah, legumes and so other sources. And so just kind of diversifying um, what's on the plate. So before we wrap up, because we're getting close here, I want to ask you about participation. What is participation exactly? And you've you've already sort of unpacked some of the things, right? Um, are you you're involved with participation? No, I'm not. Um, I'm not involved um, with it. I, I know what it is. Um, but I'm not, I haven't been working with them. Another one of the, our previous grad students uh, from HRS is so Lee Vanderloo. Okay, yeah, yeah. She is uh, the Knowledge Translation Manager for um, Participation. But uh, basically they are, um, I think they're a not-for-profit organization that um, is focused on getting people involved in physical activity. Um, they prepare like the report card on, on physical activity in Canada. So they look at, you know, how well we're doing in terms of getting those, you know, 60 minutes a day of, of, of physical activity. Um, and they uh, kind of release that report card yearly and talk about different issues that are affecting um, Canadians. So sometimes I think pre- in previous years we've looked at sleep, so kids sleep and, and how they're not getting enough of it. Um, they've also um, really identified, um, I think one of the titles was, are we driving our kids to like bad health behaviors or something, but just how you know we don't have any active travel um, or we have limited active travel in our day-to-day lives. So um, yeah, they kind of 
look into all of the, of the research that's been done in Canada and try to make it into kind of a digestible um, document that Canadians can read and, and get informed about, um, yeah, their health and their physical activity behaviors. Was something like participation a part of your intervention, like with your group in particular? Yeah, so we, we shared a lot of um, participation resources. Um, we had uh, quite a few community partners that were able to share their resources with us. The Heart Stroke Foundation um, was involved. Um, the Middlesex London Health Unit came. We had, yeah, we had dietitians, public health nurses, so a bunch of different community partners. Um, our program uh, was community-based, and we were really emphasizing that... Um, yeah, these are different connections that parents can be making and, and different experts that they can get information from. So, yeah, it really helped uh, that we were able to leverage that kind of community support and community expertise. So would you encourage by, by any means, really, children getting physical activity or exercise? So if that means, like, the Nintendo Wii U, is that still, like, if you do it for 60 minutes, is that going to equal playing at recess or whatever? What, what are your thoughts? Um... I don't I don't know I don't know that it's equivalent. I think if they're using the Wii versus sitting and gaming, then yes, I think that's better. But I think um, you know, active, like unstructured play or even even structured sports, they they're associated with a ton of different benefits, you know, above just getting those 60 minutes of physical activity. Like yes, that's that's important, but you know, when you're playing with other kids, you're also developing social skills and feeling more connected, and that's good for your, you know, mental health and um, social connectedness. So I think there's other benefits to actually engaging in physical activity um, with your peers and not just kind of at home with a Wii, potentially by yourself. So is technology really um, putting our, our children these days at... at, at giving them more barriers to physical activity because, you know, like, you can be connected to people through the internet mm -hmm. gaming and things like that, and you really may not have any reason to get up and go play in the street or anything like that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on technology these days for children? Yeah, I think te technology, um, you know, I think we are certainly spending more time in front of our screens than ever. I think kids spend, like, eight hours a day in front of screens is what um, a recent report from the Heart and Stroke Foundation um, has said, and so... Yeah, we're getting a, you know, a ton of screen time, which if we're in front of screens, we're not likely to be engaging in physical activity. So certainly that is a barrier. Um, I agree that kids might feel um, connected to each other through social media. And I understand, you know, that might have benefits, but it also might have some negative implications, um, you know, in terms of bullying and that, and that kind of thing. Um, but I think technology could be leveraged into something positive too. If there was you know, an app that connected you to your friends and it was maybe like, you know, Fitbits, you have apps for that and you can challenge your friends and um, track your physical activity that way. I think there's a lot of benefits to um, to use and, and, and that we could harness from, from our smartphones or from computers or whatever type of technology it is. But um, I do think for kids that yes, it's um, it is problematic when they're spending more time with their smartphones than they are kind of outside and engaging in health behaviors. Well, Dr. Riley, it's been a wonderful conversation. And I, before I wrap things up with you, I'm going to ask you something that I ask everybody. My mm -hmm. listeners are probably familiar with this is how would you define health or what does health mean to you? Well, I think um, <laughs> it might be kind of 
cliche for me to quote that, um, you know, the WHO definition of health. Um, but I think that is really um, how I frame health in, in my work and in my own life is that, you know, it's not just about the absence of a disease or, you know, not being sick. It's about feeling well in all these domains of your health. So in terms of your occupational health, in terms of your physical health, mental health, social health, um, I see all of those factors as, as um, influencing our overall health. So I take a more comprehensive approach. Um, and I think, and I think that it's more about yeah health and well-being and promoting that in our daily lives to um, to feel good and, and be happy. Fantastic. All right. Well, well, we'll have to have you back on and we'll chat more um, about these topics in particular, uh, maybe down the road if you're open to that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come back and chat more. All right. Well, thank you very much. And that wraps up another edition of Health, Illness and Recovery. Until next time, everyone, take care. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.